Welcome to Women Who Lead. I'm Ann Thomas, and I'm here with my co-host, Luann Thomas Ewald, the Chief Operating Officer of C.S. Mott Children's Hospital and the Von Voigtlander Women's Hospital. On this edition of Women Who Lead, we'll talk about the effect of COVID-19 on our teenagers. We'll recognize the significant work of our Catholic nuns and sisters in education, community service, and health care right here in Michigan. And you'll meet our third Women Who Lead honoree. The conversation gets underway in just a few minutes. Welcome to Women Who Lead. I'm Ann Thomas, and I'm here with my co-host, Luann Thomas-Ewald. And Luann, our first guest, has authored an interesting new study on the effect of COVID-19 on our teenagers. Sarah J. Clark, co-director of the C.S. Mott National Poll on Children's Health, and also a faculty member in the Department of Pediatrics. Welcome to Women Who Lead. It's nice to meet you. Thanks so much for having me. And I'm going to have Lou kind of kick things off. So Lou, take it away. So Sarah, thank you for being with us. And the the Mott National Poll has really, over the past 12 months, has really been keeping a pulse on um, what is impacting our families and our children throughout the pandemic. And it has been, you know, cited throughout the world um, really as, as um you know, a, a reference and a resource to, for our parents and, and for our medical community. So what we wanted to talk to you about today is last week, um, a new poll came out and it really discussed um, the mental health and focused on the mental health of our children. So can you talk a little bit about what that study found? So this was a a poll of parents around the country, not just Michigan, but including Michigan and every other state. And parents were commenting on the changes they've noticed in their teens. So we asked about 13 to 18 um, since the pandemic started. And really the overwhelming thing is that Three quarters of parents say it's had a negative impact on their teen's ability to interact with their friends. And that's to be expected, right? Many kids aren't in school. Um, we can't meet in person the way we used to. But along with that, almost half of parents say they have noticed either a new mental health problem or a worsening of an existing mental health problem for their teens since the start of the pandemic. Half. That's just a huge number. Well, and we know, you know, we are, we're seeing that in our emergency rooms, sadly. Um, what, you know, what, my, I'm, you know, I am not, um, I am not clinical, but we, we can just see with the lack of kids interacting at school, um, sports being shut down. I mean, all of their emotional outlets have really been shut down for over now over 12 months. So what what can parents do? Um, what What's some advice that right. you can give our, our parents on, on how to address this so these kids are not ending up in the emergency room? I think there are a couple of really sensical steps. And the first one is um, just noticing just being present. And, um, you know, one of the other 
things that can exacerbate is we've really changed our um, the amount of time that families are with one another. So while kids are not having the interaction with their peers the same way, they're also having more interaction with their families, including parents, at a time where kids traditionally are kind of pushing those boundaries of independence. So one of the findings from this study was about 14% of parents say that they noticed their teens withdrawing from the family. And the question is, where does that become a problem? And where does it really need parents to think about creating space for their teen and trying to find ways for them to still develop that independence um, and allowing them to do something to push those boundaries that right now that natural um, adolescent development is being stymied. There's another really big thing um, that can be going on here, and that is the anxiety about the future. So when we think about particularly high school, and there is year after year, you know, sophomore year, junior year, senior year, kids are thinking about GPAs, they're thinking about activities, they're thinking about what comes next. And a lot of that has really been turned around. Kids are anxious about college. How is this going to affect my chances? But you know who else is anxious? Parents. So to me, the number one thing that parents can do right now is don't put your stress onto your kid because they got enough of it. And, and I, I remember during the pandemic, um, are you going to Sorry. You've got Lose a little for a second. Somebody's feeding back. Lou's got a little bit of an echo. I wonder yeah. why. Yeah, I heard that. Um, can you get hello, headphones, hello. Lou? That's better, Lou. Hello. Is that better? That's better. Okay. All right. So we'll pick back up at uh, up. wait here. Here we go. Thank okay. you. Sarah, I know during the pandemic, um, I, I have two teenage daughters and they, and I was talking to other parents and they were getting into this cycle of staying up till four in the morning, sort of talking to their friends and watching movies together virtually through the middle of the night and then sleeping throughout the day. And so at first I was like, you can't do this. You have to get your normal sleep cycle. And then after a while, like, what else do they have to do? So is, is there something to be said really for parents to relax on, on some of the traditional rules and family structures? There absolutely is. And what we found in our poll is that many parents have done that, either relaxing the social media rules or relaxing family rules to allow a little bit more um, contact with friends. And of the parents who tried that, most said it did indeed help. You know, it's, it's interesting in a situation where nothing is normal, do we really want to enforce kind of arbitrary normal eating times or normal bedtimes? I, I think that's a real challenge for parents, but recognizing in response to signs you see in your child that things aren't going great, it's perfectly okay to think about how can we give them a little bit more ownership over certain things in their life that allows them to try to adjust. 
Now, Sarah, our guest here today is Sarah Clark. She's the co-director of the CS Mott National Poll on Children's Health. And Sarah, I am the mother of young adults, not teenagers, but they've just become young adults. And there's a couple of things that I've noticed with, with my group is, first of all, that like you pointed out for the teens, that my attitude really matters. So if I have a positive attitude and I keep saying, you know, we're going to get through this, and here are some of the things that I'm doing to make my day better, that they're following my lead. So whatever I think about this really matters. So that's the first thing that I've noticed. The second thing I've noticed is uh, when I talk about the future, I try to be as positive as I possibly can. And I point to all of the hope that is surrounding us right now with regard to vaccines. So can you talk a little bit about how to handle that? What to say about the future? Because, you know, it does seem like pretty soon here, things are going to get a whole lot better. I think that's a smart approach. And along with being generally positive about the future and about um, specifically about how we will begin to um, have less of a pandemic restriction uh, as we go forward. Another really important thing to do is if your adolescents or your young adults are stressed about college, jobs, things like that, is really emphasize, you know, everybody's in the same boat. So it's not the case that you are the only one that didn't, wasn't able to do an internship and that's going to um, really hurt your chances. You know, lots of people weren't able to do an internship. Um, And so I, I think we're all in this together is a good message. And then I think, especially when you're feeling like the teen or young adult is receptive, talk about you know, what can you do, um, one, to just survive, but two, to get something positive out of that. And some people are learning a language or taking up a form of art that they've never tried before. And there isn't like, ooh, there's one right way to do this that will impress my future employer or the admissions officer. It's more trying to find a thing that demonstrates their positivity toward the future. And Lou, what about you? Do you have any other thoughts in dealing with your teens as to what else could be done to try to get us through this tough time? Yeah, I think um, what what we've done is, you know, right after that experience where I was losing my mind that they were staying up all night, um, <laughs> because I would literally come home from work and they you know, they would be in the middle of their sleep cycle. I'm like, this is not working for me. But then I, I'm like, well, wait a minute. They, you know, their college has been disrupted. Their high, their high school has been disrupted. Let me help them make decisions um, that will make them comfortable. So again, internships were canceled. So, you know, I counseled my daughter to say, well, ask them if you could volunteer just to keep her, instead of getting paid for the internship like she was supposed to, um, you know, the first conversation was, why would I do that? Well, because you will get, you know, so we, we talked through that and she did, she volunteered her time for the internship. Um, she, you know, she got that on her resume 
because I was concerned we were going to have a summer of the cycle of going to bed at four in the morning. I'm like, let's let's get our minds working somehow, even if it's volunteer. Um, so that's that's what we've done. I had my high schooler. Um, she's got her first job in a little deli and is helping a guy start his new deli business that he opened during COVID, right? So it's like, just do something to keep those minds moving, um, to give them some sense of purpose in this, in this madness. <laughs> And Sarah, before we let you go, is there anything else that you would like our listeners to know? Any other advice that you can give them to get through just probably a few more months of this? It is. And I would say the last thing is um, many of the parents in our poll reached out to health professionals and sometimes school professionals when they felt like things weren't right. That's a good thing to do. Trust your instinct Keep your, keep your ears open, keep your mind open, try to hear what your kids are telling you and don't be afraid to reach out and, and ask for help because nobody wants to make the mistake of waiting too long. Great. So I would just encourage parents, it's a good thing to do. Trust your parent instincts. Sarah Clark, co-director of the CS Mott National Poll on Children's Health and also a faculty member in the Department of Pediatrics at Michigan Medicine. Thank you so much for your time today, and we really appreciate the advice. It's very helpful. Thanks for having me. You are listening to Women Who Lead. We will be back with an interesting story about Michigan's nuns and sisters. Stay with us. That's coming up next. You are listening to Women Who Lead. I'm Ann Thomas. I'm here with my co-host, Luann Thomas-Ewald. And Luann, we continue the conversation now with Patty Montemurray, a longtime Detroit reporter and local author. Patty is here today because it's Women's History Month, and there's an effort underway to highlight the legacy and ministries of Catholic nuns and sisters. And Patty has written a book about the IHM nuns based in Monroe called Immaculate Heart of Mary, Sisters of Michigan. Patty, welcome to the show. It's great to see you. Thank you. Excited to be here. And I'd like to point out that this entire interview is being done by Mercy Girls. <laughs> so, Lou, take it away. I know you've got some interesting questions for Patty this morning. I do. Good morning, Patty. Good Patty, morning, Luann. Un, you know, unfortunately, we, you know, during COVID-19, we, we have seen a lot of the stories about our nuns and how COVID-19 has impacted them. And then it, you know, gets one to think of, you know, we don't see nuns in our schools. We don't see nuns in our hospitals. And, you know, they were really the foundation for education and health and really started this country on those. They were. So can you talk a little bit about that history and that foundation service? Sure. Um, uh, During Women's History Month, I think it's important to acknowledge the contribution of so many Catholic sisters and nuns through history. Um, They they were really feminists before there was even a word for it or, or even you know, a definition for it. I mean, they helped build this country. They helped build the hospital systems. They helped build the schools that educated um, so many uh, young people through the years. Um, 
one thing about um, earlier this month in March, there was National Catholic Sisters Week, and that was an effort undertaken by a uh, uh, an Immaculate Heart of Mary sister from Monroe, who's the president of a uh, Alverno College in Milwaukee. Her name is Sister Andrea Lee, and she undertook an effort about in nine, in 2013 to bring more attention to this uh, legacy of uh, American Catholic sisters and nuns. And during uh, it's a way to if during this month, it's a good time perhaps to reach out to some of the sisters who taught us, who formed. Uh, you know, helped form the lives of so many influential people across the U.S. and re remind them and thank them for, for their service. Um, here in Michigan, um, some of the first hospitals in the state were established by Catholic sisters, um, including the, the Mercy Hospitals that we know so well throughout the state. Um, at one point in, in the 1970s, there were 25 hospitals operated in the state by Mercy Sisters. Um, that's changed as the number of sisters have declined over the year and uh, over the years. And as we know, the uh, population of Catholic sisters has diminished. It's a very elderly population now in the U.S. Um, at one point, there were about 180,000 Catholic sisters in the U.S. during the peak of the baby boomer years in the 1960s when they were educating so many. And now there are about um, 38,000 Catholic sisters in the U.S. Um, here in Michigan, uh, some of the uh, the some of the oldest schools and some of the oldest private and Catholic schools were operated and continue to be operated by religious sisters. Uh, in Detroit, the uh, Academy of the Sacred Heart was founded by sisters from France in the about 1851, and that started. Uh, downtown where the Rensen is now, and uh, they now operate a school out in Bloomfield Hills. Um, and the IHM sisters, who taught so many, the Immaculate Heart of Mary sisters, they started their, they came to Michigan in 1845, and they have a very interesting history because their co-founder, they were co-founded by a redemptorist priest, Father, um, Father Louis Gillet, who was from Belgium, and he recruited a woman from Baltimore who was a, of mixed race heritage. She was part Haitian and um, she had joined the first um, African-American order of sisters in the United States. It's called the Oblate Sisters of Providence and they're still in existence today. And um, he brought her to Michigan, to Monroe, Michigan, because she could speak French and she could pass for white. And he brought her to Monroe because there was a large population of French Canadians there. And he started, a, she helped, Sister Teresa Maxis Duchemin was her name. She co-founded the Immaculate Heart of Mary Order and started a school that later became known as St. Mary's of Monroe and the, the entire IHM congregation. So um, I could go on and on as you're, <laughs> you're getting that sense from me right now, but that's just a little bit of some of the foundational history of these women and uh, and they've just sisters michigan women who became catholic sisters have just gone on to be incredible um they've they've shattered stained glass ceilings across the country and and at the vatican and you know patty i i was just interviewed last week for the student newspaper for mercy high school and they were asking about my experience at Mercy. And I, I, my favorite story is I was a freshman 
And my advisor was the principal at the time, Sister Nancy Thompson. And I had been at school for three weeks. And she sat me down and said, are you going to run for student council? Oh, and I said, no, 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 I have other things to do with my freshman life. Um, and she said, I think you should run for student council. And I said, why? And she said, well, I, I see how you are when you walk down the halls. I see how you say hi to everybody, whether you know them or not. And she said, and I just think you're a natural leader and you should do this. And I said, okay, right. So, and so I did. And so I tell that story because she had, or she saw something in me that I didn't, right? And so I say, that's where my career started was that conversation as a 14 year old girl with sister Nancy, who literally has been my mentor my whole life. Every time I get a new job, every time I had a baby, she was the first one <laughs> with, with a note. So, you know, I'm so thankful to the Mercy Sisters for um, my life and for what they've done in this community. I mean, I I just got off the phone <laughs> with my colleague at, at uh, St. Joe's Ann Arbor, which, you know, you know, was, again, one of the, the Mercy um, affiliates and, and continues to be. So talk, talk to us about with the, with the the number of nuns declining so rapidly, how can we continue this, this culture of service and education and caring for the poor um, without them being in our environments? Yes. The, um, there is, as I noted earlier, there's been a dramatic drop in the number of, of Catholic sisters in the U.S. And, and um, when you talk to the sisters now, they'll tell you that that incredible surge of, of women who felt a calling um, to the sisterhood last century, that that might be an anomaly in the history of, um, you know, the development of women religious. Um, a lot of uh, um, some of the reasons you don't see a calling to the convent so much now is because there are so many other opportunities for women. Um, and when these when a lot of the sisters we knew were coming up, um, they felt a calling, but they also knew that was a way to continue their education and to perhaps do things besides, um, you know, outside the realm of the home and motherhood. And um, that's one reason you saw that surge. And plus, um, you had uh, a, a lot of immigrant families in the U.S. at the time who had large, large families. And it was sort of uh, given a tradition that, you know, maybe a, a son would become a priest and a daughter would become a Catholic sister. Um, when the Sisters of Mercy, you know, who built the campus in Farmington Hills, um, that includes Mercy High and what was the uh, Detroit province of the Sisters of Mercy, when that opened up in the mid-60s, there were 700 Sisters of Mercy in the Detroit province, and now there are 70. So that's one of the reasons they're selling their retirement comp, I mean, not the retirement complex, but their their headquarters, you know, what had been the headquarters for the Detroit province is because there just isn't that need anymore for those, you know, for that kind of facility. And, and they'll tell you it's painful, but it's, 
it's a it's a necessary change and it's a necessary evolution in how sisters serve and adapt. Um, one way they're hoping to continue this legacy of service, and it's not just the Sisters of Mercy, but it's the Adrian Dominicans and it's the IHMs from Monroe and it's the Felician Sisters out of Livonia and it's the Sisters of St. Joseph who were once who are still based in the Kalamazoo area. One way they try to um, continue that is by having what's called associates program. And you can become a, you can become a a member of the Sisters of Mercy, and you can be a guy, you can be a man, you can be a woman, you can be a married woman, you can be a single woman, you can be a divorced woman. Um, you, what you do is you become an associate and you um, align yourself uh, with the mission of, of the particular congregation. You undertake a period of um, uh, reflection with a, with a member of the congregation as your sort of mentor. And you commit yourself to a, um, a course of, you know, studying spirituality, studying the history of the congregation, learning about their mission, about who they're trying to serve, and you can, and then you can partake in a lot of their programs, in their, um, in the ways they minister. Um, a lot of the sisters' uh, congregations now are committed to social justice issues, to um, fighting for environmental um, concerns, and that's what. And and then you can also partake in their. Um, their religious life, their spiritual life, in terms of you know being part of their um, celebrations, their masses, their um, events too. So one way they try to do that is through the associates program. And if you're interested, you can you know find uh, talk to a, a sister you know and learn a little bit more about it. It seems to me that that kind of program, Patty, would be a great mentoring program for a young woman because as oh. as Lou points out. Sister Nancy was her mentor, and these these nuns—they're basically CEOs. They are. They're, they're CEOs in their own right, and they've been CEOs forever. Right, right. And they're some of the most intelligent people, absolutely, and well-educated people I have ever met. You're right. And um, when I was talking earlier about how some of these women from Michigan have shattered the stained glass ceiling, let me tell you some examples. Um, the first woman to lead Catholic Charities of the USA, which is one of the largest charities in the States and serves 9 million people a year, regardless of faith or, um, you know, religion, that's a that's a nun. That's a nun who's a member of the Adrian Dominican Congregation in Lenawee County. Her name's Sister Donna Markham. She's um, been the president of uh, Catholic Charities since 2013. And, and that's an incredible, you know, job of responsibility and impact. Um, another example is the first woman to become the president of the Catholic Theological Union in Chicago. That's one of the largest um, institutes of Catholic theology in the United States. It was established by 24 congregations and order, orders of um, priests and religious brothers, is a woman who grew up in Inkster and went to Rosary High School, my alma mater, which was run by um, Adrian Dominicans. Her name is Sister Barbara Reed. She's a member of the Grand Rapids Dominican Congregation, and she just assumed that post as the top um, leader, of, uh, as, as the president of the Catholic Theological Union um, this year. And she once was a um, Spanish teacher at St. Mary's High School in Saginaw, I believe. But she's become a um, she's a renowned scholar in the feminist interpretation of the New Testament, and she's um, she was chosen by all these priests and brothers 
to lead um, the Catholic Theological Union. And um, there's a, one of the top women who ever um, achieved a top post at the Vatican is an IHM nun, Sister Sharon Holland. Um, she grew up in Pontiac. She was a music teacher at St. Mary's in Wayne, Michigan, but she became a top canon lawyer, a top Catholic church lawyer. She served in uh, at the Vatican as a lawyer, and she um, was one of the highest ranking women there under um, Pope John Paul II and Pope Benedict. And mm -hmm. then she became um, a leader, a president of the Leadership Conference of Women Religious, which is the national umbrella organization wow. that represents most most of the congregations in the U.S. And she's she's now in Monroe, living in Monroe, Michigan, at the Amazing. IHM Mother House. So and I you know, go on. <laughs> I was just going to say the stories go on and on. Patty yeah. Montemurray, thank you for joining us today to talk just a little bit about the incredible work of these women. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you. You are listening to Women Who Lead. We'll be back right after these messages. On this last segment of Women Who Lead, the conversation continues now with our third Women Who Lead honoree of 2021. Her name is Telva Magruder. She's the Chief of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion for General Motors. She is one of GM's most prominent electrical engineers, and she oversees operations around the world. She's also a member of the Girl Scouts board, and I'm interested to find out about that, Telva, and many more things about you. So welcome to the show. It's nice to meet you. Hello, Anne. It's great to be here. Thank you. I don't even know where to start with you. You're just an amazing person. So why don't we start with what you do right now for General Motors? Right now for GM, I'm the Chief of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion for the company, which means that I, I have the, the fantastic opportunity to lead our company forward in becoming more inclusive as we aim to be uh, the most inclusive company in the world while understanding that along that journey, we're going to be developing a, a greater um, balance or um, maturity and equity, as well as diversity than we already have today. And how about the recent news that GM has just become the only automaker with a board of directors that's majority women? You know, it's it's very exciting news. And I'll tell you that uh, Mary Barra, our CEO, and the board have been focused um, for a very long time on making sure that our board is diverse and, and that our board is very strong and can lead us into the future that we're creating. And and we have board members that we know are going to be able to to do that with us. And, and we're extremely excited with uh, the diversity and the fantastic talent on our board. Telva, talk a little bit more about the importance of diversity in a company. Diversity is absolutely key for any, any company, particularly any company that's working to change the future, which I think we all are. You know, we're working to create an all-electric future at GM. And when I think about the importance of diversity, I first think about the importance of inclusion. What we have to do is have the right people engaged in the right decisions, and, and we want their thoughts and their ideas to be amplified. The best way to do that is to have a robust conversation that has many points of view, many perspectives. And those perspectives come from people with different backgrounds. 
And so if you have people from different backgrounds um, of any sort and, and different capabilities in the room, now the best ideas are not only going to come forward, but they'll be discussed and they'll be amplified in an environment of inclusion. And so diversity is critical so that we have uh, the best way forward uh, and it's amplified by inclusion. Talk to a little bit about your work at NASA. That's amazing. How long were you there and what did you do for NASA, Talva? So I actually started working for NASA as a college intern. Mm -hmm. And I was, I was fortunate to go to Purdue on a scholarship from NASA. And uh, they not only supported uh, my educational growth, but also my growth and expertise. And as an intern, I worked in artificial intelligence. I worked in a lot of computational fluid dynamics modeling, and it was super exciting. And I was able to continue my time at NASA after I graduated with a role as a test operations engineer um, through a contract agency. And it was fantastic. I ran the combustion research facility. I was the lead engineer in the combustion research facility working with Allison engineers, testing Allison engines at the time. And then I also um, worked in a um, de-icing mechanism test facility. So we, we tested all the de-icing mechanism for aircraft as well as a supersonic wind tunnel where we tested models of the space shuttle. So I did all the instrumentation and um, analysis in that role. You know, I suspect that your work at NASA helps you with your work today at General Motors. Absolutely. You know, I learned so many things uh, starting in that research environment. And the first thing I really learned is that it really takes a wide variety of talents and passions to, to create long-term solutions. Because at NASA, we weren't working on you know, creating a result today. We were working on creating a, a result that may not manifest for four years, five years, 10 years. And to see the array of talent that was needed in order to make that happen, as well as to participate in change that had a ripple effect over time, it really gave me a great foundation and perspective when I came into the environment of GM, where I started in manufacturing and, and we were working more on a day-to-day -day basis but I was able to, to look ahead and, and really think about how, how all these pieces and parts fit together and, and bring, bring some new uh, thoughts and ideas to our manufacturing operations. And finally, you have a very deep commitment to helping young women, young girls, being a mentor. Can you address that for us? Oh, absolutely. So right now I am fortunate very blessed to serve as the chair of the board for the Girl Scouts of Southeastern Michigan. And I was a Girl Scout as a young lady and, and Girl Scouting exposed me to experiences that I never would have had without, without Girl Scouting. And it gave me the courage to take risks and to believe that I could figure things out when I, I couldn't, when I wouldn't otherwise have done so, had that belief. And I believe very strongly in investing in young ladies early because there are so many things that are coming at them in the, in the, in, from society and the external world that we all navigate in that don't necessarily reinforce who they could be. And, and so I'm really dedicated to, to investing in, in young ladies. I also invest in young men, but definitely my time with Girl Scouts fit well into a society that does need them 
that absolutely needs them and give them the skills and the courage to continue to move forward and grow. Talvin McRuder, Chief of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion for General Motors, congratulations for being one of our 2021 Women Who Lead honorees, and thanks for your time today. It's really nice to meet you. Thank you very much, Ann. I'm absolutely honored. You've been listening to Women Who Lead. On behalf of my co-host, Luann Thomas Ewald, thanks for listening, and we hope you have a great weekend.